Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Dela Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center here in Boulder, Colorado. Zenki Roshi's teaching is made possible through the Boulder Zen Center's membership program. If you're benefiting from these talks and would like to continue hearing them here on the podcast, I hope you'll consider becoming a member. You can do so on our website, boulderzen.org, and you'll find a link in the episode notes. Zenki Roshi's book, The Path of Aliveness, is now available for purchase. You can get a copy directly from the publisher at shambhala.com, which I will also link in the episode notes. Now here's Zenki Roshi with this week's talk. Good morning. It's been a while. Um, thank you for being here. I just returned from a almost five-week-long trip to German-speaking Europe, where I introduced a book I recently published. I It was writ- written originally in English, and then I decided to translate it into German, which is my mother tongue. And, um, and then I went to various places to um, talk to people about it. <clears throat> now... I want to tell you a little bit about this, my experience um, being in Europe, but not in the usual sense of telling you about what I did and, you know, who went from Vienna to Berlin and to Frankfurt and Munich and so forth. Um, When people talk about their travels, It's often not that great. I wonder why, you know, it's like there's something in this experience of being in another place, which I want to talk about. Um, Sometimes um, people get envious, you know, when they hear about somebody else having taken an exciting trip. But, you know, also I think people make their stories more exciting than they are, um, than the trips were. Um, But it could be some kind of envy, you know. Oh, I wish I could um, step out of the structures of my life into something new and different. And sometimes this... um, uh, talking about, hearing somebody talk about a journey that they've taken. Sometimes that actually can be an inspiration, like, wow, you know, maybe I should be more courageous and step out of the structures of my life and try something different. But sometimes it's just boring, you know, because you're happy with uh, the life you're living out or you think you're content or you pretend that you're content. And it's like, I don't need to hear this. <clears throat> and so, yeah, my trip wasn't particularly exciting. <clears throat> In fact, it was uh, rather disturbing, or more disturbing than exciting. I'm just saying that so that you don't have to be envious. You know. <laughs> so... I felt displaced, 
I'm going to use this word. <clears throat> I was displaced in the sense that I was in a different place on the planet. I was also feeling displaced in the sense that I wasn't home. And it's interesting, you know, when you travel like I did, I stayed in hotels, but I also stayed with um, friends. And so I entered into the home of other people. This is This is quite disturbing. It's like... I have a certain pride of being uh, a low-maintenance guest, you know. I just fit myself into the structures that I find. And I want to believe that I'm okay with anything that's, you know, the food that's being served, the rhythm in this other home. I think I can just go along with it. And I can. But I still feel displaced because I'm not living out my own habits and my own structures in the same way that I do in my own home. It was also displaced in terms of language, you know, and in my case, it was, it's always a particular experience. You know, I speak English and German in a way that I can feel both languages as my primary language and the other language as the secondary language. That's how I feel, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, um, you know, so it takes me a while to actually feel at home speaking German. And when I come back, like right now, it takes me a while to feel at home speaking English. And I don't think it shows very much, but it, I just feel it. You know, I feel dis I felt displaced in terms of culture. If you if you're not a dual citizen or rooted in two cultures the way I am, maybe that's hard to understand. But I I feel like I'm a different person when I'm speaking German and I'm in this other culture. It's like the it has positive and negative sides, so to speak, but. I'm, I'm just trying to illustrate this feeling of being displaced. Uh, displaced also in terms of landscape. The landscape in the middle of Europe is really, really different. I noticed it taking walks in forests. You know, the forests are very different. Uh, and what surprised me is, like, I really felt at home. And, and I was wondering, like, why do I feel at home in this landscape? What is this? Well, I realized it's not just a different space of landscape. It's also a different space of memories. Like, I haven't been in Germany in the summer for a long time, but being there walking in the fields, there's like... There are these smells of... Um, rye fields or wheat fields and grasses that I'm very familiar with. And they bring up memories of um, being a child and, you know, various things, riding my bicycle to the, to the outdoor pool, which is like where I grew up on a hill. And I actually, 
I decided to run in the morning uh, in, in my hometown, you know. And so I started running from the center of this town, which has maybe 5,000 inhabitants, something like that. A uh, small town. And then I was running to where I used to ride my bicycle as a child, up to where the pool is and along the edge of the forest and to the tennis courts and stuff. And I did this loop, I don't know, within an hour or something. But it felt like as a child I was riding my bicycle there forever. It's like a big world. And now, I don't know, now it was a small world. <clears throat> but when I live here, all of this is much more distant. It's gone, kind of. Because the landscape doesn't uh, trigger the same kinds of memories. <clears throat> so much, you know. I say culture, but it's the food, it's um, the way cities are organized. So what I want to illustrate is that by being displaced in this way, so what I'm calling it now, um, a space of habitual but also determinate structures was left behind and I've entered into another kind of space of different kinds of habits and structures which in my case now I was I happen to be familiar with and it it started it triggered feelings like oh I could live here you know I'm from here I should return I should go live in Germany why am I here you know it's not going to happen it's way too impractical but the feelings are there so what I'm what I'm trying to get at is there is a felt space of possibility. And that felt space of possibility is both mm, Yeah, let me say it this way, it's both exciting and anxiety provoking. Now, um, what do I mean by that? It, it has something to do with freedom. So we can feel profoundly unfree in the structures that we live out currently. They can feel very constraining. Like, oh, you know, this is what my life is. I live this way every day and I don't like it. Or something like that. Or I don't like parts of it. Or you happen to like it, that's fine too. Just trying to illustrate something. And within these, within, within the habit of living out the structures, I can forget about the fact that there are many more possibilities. And sometimes, Maybe when we go away, or like uh, the kind of traveling that I just did, 
these possibilities can come back into our awareness. It's like, wow, there really are different possibilities. So, freedom has this dual structure in my mind. There's freedom from the structures that we live within. That's it's like, I could leave this behind, or I don't have to live this way. But there are other possibilities. Um, and then there is freedom to live other structures. <clears throat> I just say structures, but you understand forms, you know, habits, routines, concepts, ways you identify yourself. You know, I, I decided to grow my hair because I want, after 20 years of shaving my head, I wanted to see what it's like. I don't know how long I will do it, but that's the result of what I'm talking about. Because, you know, that's a possibility. <laughs> so it also has to do with, you know, I'm in a role here and I'm, I'm a monk and a priest and, you know, I don't feel, you know, this is just, I'm just talking about feelings. I don't feel particularly religious or priestly, but I've taken on this role or I dress like this because it um, is a certain kind of context and it allows certain things. But I feel free from it too at the same time. So now I'm just trying to exercise my freedom to feel from feel free from shaving my head and feel the freedom to grow my hair. <clears throat> I don't know. Like I said, I don't know for how, whether I like it or not. So there is the freedom to do something. When you use your exercise, your freedom to do something, maybe something different from what you have been doing, you enter into another constraint. You enter into another determination of your life. So this can be exciting because you want the change, but it can also be anxiety-provoking because then you um, don't know what that's going to be like or whether you're capable of this new, of living out this new possibility. But there's also an even more profound anxiety, which is just the anxiety of the radical openness of it all. Do you know what I mean? It's, a, it's an existential anxiety. It's like, that there is no ultimate answer to the question of who am I, or even worse, I think, who should I be? There's no answer to that. Well, we give answers all the time. You see, in, in how we live, we give answers to these questions all the time. But what I mean is there is no ultimate recourse, or there is no ultimate authority that tells us who we should be. It's not there. Okay, I want to jump a little bit. For years now, I have 
shared with you a way to think about suffering. And I've used this formal, which I'm adopting from Shinzen Yang's contemporary meditation teacher, who says suffering equals pain times resistance. Some of you have heard me say this many times. Now, I've extended the formula, and I'm saying now suffering equals experiential intensity. So bodily felt intensity times reactivity. And by that I mean we resist intensity that is painful and unpleasant, and we attach to intensity that we find um, pleasant, pleasurable. But what I have in this, in this, in, de- in exploring this idea, what I haven't done is I, ha- I don't think I have paid close attention to a different kind of attachment. And I mean the attachment, attachment to concepts. Why are we attaching to concepts? Like concepts about who we are or concepts about how the culture should be or what the right way to live is. Right now, you know, the Supreme Court is shaking up our understanding of what the right way to live is. We, we think it is a certain way, or either we are confirmed now by what the Supreme Court is deciding the right way to live is, or we are profoundly disturbed. <clears throat> So why are we attached to concepts? And I think it has something to do with when we, when we attach to a concept, when we determine that something is a certain way, we're avoiding the anxiety of ultimately not being able to decide what's right. When you attach to something, and you call it the right thing or the ultimate authority, then you're relieved of this freedom, of the anxiety, of the existential anxiety that comes with this freedom of ultimately not really knowing. <clears throat> anyway, that's my hypothesis right now. We can work with it. When I'm attached, going back to my travel experience, when I'm attached to who I am in this particular context, it's disturbing to find myself being someone different in this other context or not having recourse to these structures or determinations that I have in this other context. I remember when I was a teenager, we had... Uh, in Germany, we had uh, an exchange student from America, from Texas. And she arrived with a suitcase that had a number of bottles of her favorite ketchup. And we just thought it was very funny. You know, my twin sister and I, it's like, oh, okay, she's arriving with her own ketchup. But it makes sense to me now. You know, back then I was like just a stupid teenager who 
could make fun of other people. But um, now I feel like, oh yeah, she's, she brought home to this other place because actually she didn't want this trip to change her. That was too anxiety provoking. So you bring your fetish, whether that's ketchup, your teddy bear or God. In my view, that doesn't matter. <clears throat> or the Supreme Court, you know, you can bring the Supreme Court as your own, as your fetish and say like, oh, we don't know how to live. Let's have the Supreme Court decide. <clears throat> Because the anxiety that comes with actually a society having to continually find out what is the right way to live is profound. I mean, I think that's happening right now. People feel this anxiety of like, are we even capable of having this kind of conversation as a society? And when you feel that you don't have that capacity anymore, then you fetishize somebody or something to tell you what to do. Sometimes we can fetishize our own history and say, like, I'm this person because it's been like this in my life and now I know who I am. Well, well, really? Do you? So this unknowability of the self and the unknowability of the world is, we could say from a Buddhist point of view, that's emptiness. The self doesn't exist. The self doesn't exist in a way that we can determine or put down and codify. And the world does not exist in this way. The world is empty. There is no super object that we can grasp and say, this is the world. This is always what we try, you know, more or less consciously have a worldview that is conclusive. And then have everybody conform to it. <clears throat> well, this is emptiness. And emptiness is liberating. Because it liberates us from this idea that, that such a thing is possible. That this fetishization of something, God, the Supreme Court, ketchup, is necessary. <clears throat> it's funny to put the Supreme Court and God in, in a line with ketchup, but... <clears throat> I have to have my favorite thing or else I can't live. So I know this, you know. I've noticed it. Like I'm traveling and I have my favorite things to eat, you know, and then they and then they're not there. You feel displaced. <laughs> you have to revert to Wiener Schnitzel, you know. <laughs> Emptiness is liberating, 
But it's also anxiety-provoking. Because there's nothing to hold on to. Supposedly, Chirgyan Trungpa said, enlightenment is like jumping out of an airplane. The bad news is there is no parachute. The good news is there is no ground. Oh, so, so meaning emptiness is profoundly understanding emptiness, enlightenment, is to get used to the fact that there, that we live in a groundless world. This is uh, the story of Buddhism, the story that Buddhism tells. In that sense, it's like sometimes I say Buddhism is the story of no story because it doesn't tell you a story of a that gives you a ground to stand on. It tells you a story of a no ground to stand on, to fall into. Hmm. Not, not so comforting from a certain point of view, but profoundly liberating. <clears throat> you could say... Freedom from something, that's like saying form is emptiness. Leaving all the forms behind. Making a journey journey to this radical openness, a kind of infinite space of possibility. Um, and you could say freedom to, freedom to live something concrete is um, emptiness is form, because from this infinitude of possibilities, we return to our concrete lives and need to live out something like this body, these relationships we're in, these cultural forms that we share with others in, in a social space. So when I came back and entered the Zendo, in the morning to sit zazen the first time, I felt, you know, and I'm not making this up. Sometimes it's necessary to have a break from something so you can appreciate it. Because I was in these time rhythms of other homes, it's difficult to fit in regular zazen practice in the morning as I'm used to, you know, because they're kids and they get up and they go to school, like in some of your homes, you know. And it's hard to fit in zazen. <laughs> so I had that difficulty. But here I came, and there's a schedule, and there's a space for it, and I sit down, and I'm profoundly grateful for my zazen practice. I'm like, oh, okay, this is good. I'm glad I've practiced this for 25 years. Why? I really asked myself anew, like, why is it so good? So I put my body in this sitting position. I don't want to philosophize about it too much. And I notice the verticality of my posture, you know, connecting heaven and earth through my own spine. And I feel the horizontality of my zazen space, which is connecting my body to the world in between heaven and earth. There's this koan phrase I like, you know, heaven, earth, and I share the same root. 
the 10,000 things in I share the same body. Yeah, that's how it feels to sit thousand. Opening your bodily space into the uh, infinity of the so-called external world. Heaven and earth just means, you know, whether that appears in the Bible or it appears in a Taoist text borrowed by a Zen koan, it just means everything all at once, heaven and earth. And everything all at once is this possibility space. It's radically open. And we can feel that physically when you find your seat. So in, in my mind, I'm taking this, I'm calling this uh, talk, taking your seat in an infinity. Because infinity, this possibility space, all these possibilities that we don't live, but that we could live, and that we maybe should live, but don't know if we can or can allow ourselves, or where we find our way moment after moment in this infinity space. <clears throat> this is both liberating and anxiety-provoking at the same time. And so, what kind of practice is there where we can find our seat in it, in this openness? Yeah, this is what Zazen practices. Taking your seat in infinity. You know, we speak about the ten directions, up and down, and four cardinal directions, and in between. This is the space of Zazen. And Dogen says, the entire world in the ten directions is the true human body. The entire world, everything, heaven and earth, in the ten directions, this is the true human body. This is, you could say, this is our true self, but it's a self that is not fixed. You see? That's what's so anxiety-provoking. This is a self that you don't know what it is. This is a self that you give form to moment after moment as you live out your life. How can we have the confidence to live out our life moment after moment, carrying the present into the present, without knowing anything, ultimately? So, the mental postures of Zazen that uh, I speak about, you know, stillness, not moving, uh, not scratching, non-reactivity, not asserting your preferences all the time, not inviting your thoughts to tea, where you learn to cut the attachments to these concepts that want to determine who you are so that you feel safe. You cut it off. You cut the movement off, the reactivity, the thinking and you and you you find your seat you take your seat and find your seat in a confidence in the midst of this openness and indeterminacy 
not because there is something special about that or we need to grasp it, just to, just to, uh, just to have the confidence to sit in that. I recently started reading this young German star philosopher, you know, he's like on the TV, you know. <laughs> uh, Marcus Gabriel is his name. Marcus Gabriel in German. So he um, he says something interesting. He says, I quote him, slightly paraphrasing, but true religion is to return from infinity with the goal of not completely losing yourself. <laughs> true religion is to return from infinity, to touch infinity, you know? It's like our Zazen practice, we touch infinity, we touch everything all at once, but we can't grasp it. And to return from that with the goal of not completely losing yourself. The way I read it is to establish a confidence in yourself that in the midst of this radical openness, in the midst of this you know, infinite space, you can Take a step, one moment at a time, <clears throat> to not, you know, be crushed by the anxiety that this open space um, provokes. And also, to not be held back by the concepts and the fixations that we create in our lives so that we feel safe. So it's that inner space that we cultivate with Zazen. It has nothing to do with this stuff, you know, of religion with Buddha figures and that can all we can all use that as a tool. Thank you very much.